Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. If you look at the chemical ingredients of life itself, you remember from biology class, we're mostly water. And good old water is H2O. Two hydrogens, one oxygen. And if you could look at the sort of the element budget of life, hydrogen is number one, as expressed in the water molecule. The number two in the human body is oxygen, turns out. Number three in the human body is carbon. Four is nitrogen. So you go into the universe, number one ingredient in the universe is hydrogen. That was true in life. Number two ingredient in the universe is helium. Well, because helium is chemically inert. You can't do anything with it even if you want it. Next in the universe is oxygen. Next, carbon. So, we are one for one matchup with the most abundant ingredients in the universe. If you're even a little bit curious about our planet or the stars above, then you all know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is. I can list his countless awards and accolades or even the books that he's written about the universe and our place in it. But what really inspires me about Neil is his endless ability to remain curious about life, about science, about all things that matter. Even taking joy in answering the most simple questions. I think that when we all think about science, it's hard to digest, but Neil has an incredible ability to make it so understandable. Be sure to check out Neil's new book, Cosmic Queries, Star Talk's guide to who we are, how we got here, and where we're going where Neil offers a unique take on the mysteries and curiosities of the cosmos, building on rich material from his beloved Star Talk podcast. I hope you find this episode of The Brown Print just as inspiring as I did. Sit back, relax, grab a pen and a pad, maybe take some notes. Listen to the genius of one Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, so Neil, let's start from the beginning, as I often like to do. Tell me um, about your childhood. I'm always curious about people who have a, um, a, a measure of success and, and when they started to realize that they, they had something special or unique about them in terms of what they would ultimately end up doing. Yeah, that's a great question. But I have to, I'm, I'm going to give you a slightly unorthodox answer because we, in the way society is currently constructed, we look for and accumulate signposts for someone's future success. And those signposts are typically put there by maybe parents or friends or teachers, institutions. And I basically uh, did not have formal recognition of any of my ambitions growing up. Um, the recognition of my ambitions was I got support from my parents but it was nurtured primarily from within. So I grew up in New York City, in the Bronx. My earliest memories are the South Bronx in a place called the Castle Hill Housing Projects. They were middle-income housing projects, and those unfamiliar with that setup is the housing projects, you live in them and pay according to your income. Mm. And if your income goes above, the family income goes above a preset level, then you're forced to move out and go to some other place. 
And so that happened while I was in, in, in kindergarten. And so we moved to the Northwest Bronx, a place called Riverdale. And that's a middle class and some sections upper middle class part of New York City. And that's where my formative years were spent in a 22-story apartment building where I had access to the roof. And my, and my interest in the universe was first uh, sparked by a family trip to my local planetarium, which of course is the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. And that's when I noticed the night sky for the first time at age nine. So what am I? I'm in fourth grade by then, fifth grade. And from, I've been hooked on the universe ever since. Now that coincided with while we were going to the moon, with the, that's how old I am, with the Apollo program, but the Apollo program had very little influence on my ambitions. Uh, I, they were sending people, you know, military pilots, they had really short haircuts. This is in the 60s at a time when hair is the number one musical on Broadway. <laughs> and so they didn't have much hair. They were, looked really different. And so that so much of the world looked different to me as a, as a young child, darker skin color, that that alone did not sort of stand out, all right, uh, as remarkable. Um, and I definitely embraced the achievement, no doubt about it, just as did the next person. But it had no, no force operating on my ambitions. So from, from age, from fourth and fifth grade onward, I had an interest in the universe. And my parents knew I had an interest in the universe. And they frequented uh, bookstores where they, back then, they sort of do it today, but I, it happens today in bookstores, but uh, it's hard when everything's online. But in the day, there'd be a table and books would have sort of a marker on their spine indicating that the price was drastically reduced. So this was called the remainder table. You'd go there and you get a $20 book for 75 cents. And it was like, oh my gosh. And my parents uh, uh, still, even though we had more money than a housing project, it was still extremely frugal. Uh, uh, my parents knew of my interests in the universe and would frequent the remainder tables and acquire books on math and on physics and on astronomy. These are the topics that get you access to understanding the universe. So by the time I was in middle school, I'm sure I had like the largest library of science books of anybody, uh, certainly of my age or of my community. And that's, and I would go home and read them. And my grades were average, like I'd like B averages and things. Grades were higher in math and lower in some other subjects. It would average out to a B. And I've had a B average my entire life. And because I had a B average, there is no teacher in my entire academic track, no teacher who, if at the time you said, tell us about that Tyson, none of them would have said, oh, he'll go far. <laughs> none of them would have said that. None of them. Meanwhile, I knew within myself what my ambitions were and my energy invested in it. And you know, I, I, I walk dogs with a big apartment building. Many people would pay you to walk their dog. I walk dogs, yeah. 50 cents per dog per walk. And I walk oh. two dogs. Um, and that money accumulates quickly. I bought my first telescope, well, my second telescope, which is a real, t a real sort of backyard telescope. For me, it was a 
rooftop telescope. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a backyard because you live in an apartment building. Right. And, and so, so I, uh, I bought a camera, I did astrophotography. I bought the materials for a dark room back what you needed when you wanted to develop your own film and to create your own prints. All this was going on outside of the school system. And the teachers just didn't know this. And so as far as they were, they were concerned, I was just sort of an average mm. student. I, there were several things that caught my attention. Um, and so I'm going to go back and then maybe you can um, explain a little more because uh, that was great detail. But you said when you were in fourth grade and you moved, you that was the first time you noticed the sky. What about the sky mesmerized or captivated you at that age where you had to stop and pay attention then? Oh, yeah. Great, great question. So let me clarify that. Maybe I didn't say it precisely. Uh, when I was in a f- uh, fourth or fifth grade, I think it was fourth grade. It was definitely fourth grade. It was the first time I saw the night sky in the Hayden Planetarium. Oh, okay. And so it was a, uh, I'd never noticed we're New Yorkers here. So who notices this? Who even thinks about the sky? Right? <laughs> you are right about that. <laughs> there is no sky. There is, you look up, there's a tall building. And back then there was more light pollution than there is today. And there was air pollution all manner of things that interfere with anyone's uh, communing with mm-hmm. the cosmos. And so it was, I was oblivious to the universe until I walked in to the Hayden Planetarium. And that trip was a trip that we took weekly. My family, brother, sister, and parents, they would take us to all manner of museums and other sort of cultural institutions of the city. And at the time, I thought they were just sort of family trips. And I realized they were just to get us out of the house and run us so that we'd, we'd just drop to sleep as soon as we got home. But at the end of the day, that exposure was paramount to what I could imagine I'd end up doing as an adult. And my brother was deeply influenced by the art museums and he became an artist. So, so this, this as, a, as, a, as an activity, I have found to be quite potent in the formative years when you're trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. So there was the night sky. And to this day, to this day, since I was imprinted by the night sky of the planetarium dome, to this day, when I'm on mountaintops in the, in the most um, beautiful uh, points of access to the night sky in the world, and I look up and I say, gosh, that's so beautiful. It reminds me of the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> it's embarrassing to say that, to analogize the real thing to a projection on a dome. But that's that's how influenced I was so long ago. Well, there was something about it that that you were attracted to. And you said a, mo- a moment ago, commuting with the cosmos, like that's so eloquently put. But there was something for you in that moment. I, I'm a firm believer that there is a defining moment in our our young years that determine where we end up. And that for you, I believe, from what you're telling me, was your moment. I, I, I also want to talk about these indicators because so many times in life, people will determine who we are based on indicators. And you said for you, that was great. B is fine. I was a B student. I think B is great. It doesn't mean that because you're not performing at some standardized level, you won't be a success. But why? Do you believe you were a B student? I read somewhere um, there was a thought of you being inattentive, like you weren't focused in school. I don't know how true that is, but why do you believe you were a quote unquote B student, average student? 
Oh, well, okay. I mean, historically, C is average, right? Right. So one up from C is a B, one down. Oh, that's very good. B is very from good. From yes. C, it's been a while a... since I've been in school. <laughs> yeah, there's been great inflation <laughs> yeah, over the decades. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm calling B average. But what I really mean by that is, if you get straight Bs or average out to a B, that is not high enough for anyone to say, "Hey, you know, you don't wear that on your lapel." I'm a straight mm. B student. You know, no one. This is not something that that people believe is. An indicator of anything. Now we can say today, nothing wrong with being a B student. Of course, um, there was nothing wrong with being a B student back then either. Except that no one is declaring that you're going to be something for mm. having had a B student, uh, having a, a B average. That's not. It's not in people's uh, prepared remarks for how do they assess who and what you are at the time, uh, beginning in about fourth grade. I had very high social energy. I was very friendly with a lot of people. By fifth grade, I was class president. Um, not school president, but just class yeah, president. Sure. And um, so I, I was highly sociable and can't be too sociable in a class because you're <laughs> disruptive. Now, there are people who are disruptive just for being disruptive. I was, I guess, disruptive because I had my social energy was sort of bubbling out of me. And that, if, so what is it, what is a, think about it. When a teacher says they have a really good student, who is that student? That's a, a student who yeah. pays attention, right? who doesn't speak up out of turn in class, who yeah. follows directions, and who gets high grades. Yeah. So I got medium grades, and I had social energy, passing notes to friends, this sort of thing. And so this was on my report. I still have my report cards from elementary school where teachers were complaining less social involvement and more academic diligence is in order. So it is clear that teachers then, and I think many teachers now, if not most teachers, are, are, are not equipped to ask other questions like, what is your ambition? Right. Uh, what do you do when you're not in class? Are you hanging out in the street corner? Had I been asked that, I would say, oh, here's my dark room, and here's my here are photographs that I've printed and made, and here's what I learned, and here are the books that I read, and here are the puzzles I put together. No one asked that. So I guess my for me, the takeaway was I, I needed to be my own uh, support system, really. I could not turn to agencies or organizations or teachers for that. Now we know today, primarily due to the uh, the the world of the internet, mm -hmm. the fact that the internet exists and manifests as it does, and that just the whole tech industry, we know that most of the people who were shakers and movers in making that happen didn't even graduate college, and so they they were not drawn from the ranks of straight A students, and that would include Bill Gates. Who dropped out of college, and 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 Michael Dell, who dropped out of college, one of the co-founders of Twitter, dropped out of college. So you just I mean, go yeah, down you this. Yeah. You you see it, and but yeah. they're quite visible today. Elon Musk, okay, they're visible today. Back then, no, there was no way to even know that you could do anything unless you followed all of those rules. So, so I'm just glad that I had the confidence of my own self awareness to not be. Um, dissuaded by these, um, the absence of these, uh, this praise and, and commentary.
I think that has a lot to do with the fact that you were so naturally curious. I find that the people who read on their own, who are just naturally curious about what else there is in the world, don't rely on validation of others that much because of the reality to to do something on their own. Yeah, I think that's perfectly worded. And uh, and you just summarized what I spent 10 minutes trying to communicate. <laughs> Thank you. Would you jump in a little more often and summarize will, what I'm trying to say? I will do so. <laughs> I will do so. I, I, I find it interesting, though, that you said something that, that, that this leads to my question. You said success for you was um, realized when you got your PhD. And I think that was a huge achievement. But I want to talk about being a Black scientist and what you had to experience on your road to getting that PhD. I, I, I couldn't imagine the surprise that was on people's faces when they saw you or listened to you even for that matter, you know what I mean? Or understood what your your passion was. And 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 I've read that you've been told, well, as you mentioned a moment ago, why not be an athlete? Why not do something, you know, seemingly more traditional for a Black man? Walk me through this this educational journey as you get your PhD um, and you, quote unquote, arrive at this moment of realization? Yeah. So that's a very important question. And just sort of jump in if I get too long-winded here. Um, my father was active in the civil rights movement. Um, he worked under the mayor of New York City as uh, and headed up agencies whose goal it was to uh, bring opportunities, job opportunities and educational opportunities to to the inner city. And one little known fact, by the way, was if you look at 1967, 68, even a little bit into 1969, where the major okay. cities were burning, especially 1968 with the riots that were in response yes. to assassinations and, and, and abject poverty and other conditions. New York City did not burn. Hmm. And the, there are no news articles about events that don't happen. You know, we, and, and so, so the fact that my father was successful in ensuring that at least in New York City, and there was, there was spot dust ups, I would call them, but relative to other cities, New York's relative to Watts, to Washington, D.C., to, to Baltimore, the, New York City was quiet. And, you know, what is a riot if not a, a, it's the last act when you have no other options available to you? It's an act of desperation. So in New York City, if you knew, you believed and you knew you had opportunities and programs to help you, then you're not in that state of mind where, where, the, where the egg mm. cracks. Okay. Mm -hmm. My mother was a housewife. Um, by prior agreement, she would raise the kids. And when we became empty nest, she would then go back to school, which she did. She went on to get her master's in gerontology. And so here I have two parents who are deeply concerned about the human condition. And I'm their son, the scientist. So the reason why I gave that preamble is because I was persistently exposed to the challenges of being black in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard stories from my parents. My father ran track. And when they went 
to travel, you know, because you're an athlete, you travel to other campuses and other locations. When they went south of New Jersey, it was the, they had to figure out, you know, where they could stay because they were otherwise unwelcome. Meanwhile, they're competing on the same tracks. So I heard these stories and there's nothing in my life of the challenges that I encountered that rivaled even the, the most benign of the stories that they shared with me. Mm-hmm. And I, this is important because what, mm-hmm. it, what it did was it, it, it um, benchmarked what, how I would react to things that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the taxi doesn't pick me up because I'm headed north in Manhattan and north is Harlem. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll just wait for another taxi. There's a right. different taxi that's going to get my money. So two taxis go by, the third one picks me up. Okay. I enter a restaurant and they seat me in the back, not in the front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I still have access to the same menu. I deal with it. Okay. So that's, they're, they're ready to get on the airplane when I could finally afford a first class ticket or I was invited someplace and they paid for my first class. Um, I get in the first class line and the flight attendants say, this is the first class line uh-huh. trying to <laughs> presume that I was standing in the wrong place. Okay. Uh-huh. So I don't know if today they would call these microaggressions, mm-hmm. but relative to anything my parents shared with me, this was just a, you know, same shit, different day. Mm-hmm. And, and so I reach into a fuel tank that I have. It's a fuel tank of ambition that overrides people's expectations that I'm either going to be a criminal or not deserving or I'm in the wrong profession and I just keep invoking and applying these sources of energy to get through these barriers. And even in, and again, there are little things like in graduate school, the first day I was in graduate school, um, a faculty member came up to me, saw me and said, uh, oh, you could join our intramural basketball team. That was the first thought. It wasn't, normally you would say, oh, what are you interested in? You know, what topics? The first thought was, want to join our intramural basketball team. Mm -hmm. And so, so, and and so you, you, you asked me specifically, you asked me specifically about my academic trajectory and what challenges I faced. I'm simply saying, those challenges are no different than anything I'd be facing or any of the rest of us were facing in everyday life walking down the street. Mm-hmm. So I cannot highlight what I encountered in school as something special or different. Mm. Uh, you know, you'd walk in a, in a department store and the security follows you, right? This is especially black men. And, and I'm, I'm not, uh, any one of us, particularly of that era, will tell you this. So, so um, it's a matter of, of not letting it get to you, okay? And I don't know the full psychology of this. Uh, I know there are people who uh, reach some breaking point and they just can't keep sustaining this persistent force declaring if not daily then weekly that they don't belong um i never belonged 
So I just kept moving mm -hmm. forward. And a turtle to me, since my father ran track, I had this pocket full of track metaphors. You know, what does a hurdler do when they reach a hurdle? They jump over it. <laughs> they train themselves to jump over the hurdle. All right. And if you can't jump over the hurdle, you know, you, you walk around it, dig under it. But to say, I have nothing but hurdles in my life. Yeah. Okay. Well, do some stretching, do some exercising and jump over them. Because at the other side, it's worth it. I love and it. What's the worth it is the wisdom and the knowledge and the enlightenment and the, the, the power of, of problem solving that comes with being a trained scientist. I emerged on the other side of that. And so I don't dwell on any of these. So your questions that you've asked me, I, I, I hardly ever talk about them. Yeah, of course. Uh, because I've just kept moving. Yeah, you, and... you, you, you said the fuel tank of ambition and you would, you would reach into it and you would apply, you would invoke. And I think, that's, I think that is a skill set that is often underused and rarely discussed because it is something that is acquired over time. And when you talk about your parents consistently and persistently showing you, I think that is, to me, um, a blessing that you were able to have. And, uh, and, and by the way, they, they never, they were never bitter. Of course. About their life experiences that were, um, that undervalued them or were, would have made them sad and may have made them sad. They, I don't know if it was sort of a Martin Luther King kind of state of mind, but it was, we just have to change this world. That's it. All right. You, you could carry the anger with you and you'd be angry with the world and angry, or you can say, maybe we can change this. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can improve it. So, so I, I didn't hardly ever did I carry anger or frustrations. It was, I'm just going to keep moving here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's going to take me more energy and it may even take me more time, which ultimately it did, but I didn't care. I want to talk to you about the work that you do. I, I would love yeah. for you to, for, for my listeners who are, who think science is too difficult to understand. And I would mm -hmm. love for you to break down what you do. And then later on, I'm going to say, talk to me about life on Mars. Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so make sure we have time for that. Okay, for sure. okay. So, so. Um, as a scientist, so first of all, um, why do you do anything in life? Okay. And maybe there are two kinds of people. There are people who do something, do things because maybe there's obviously there's more than two kinds of people, but I'm simplifying. There are people who do something because they enjoy it. There are people that do things because it's easy and they do well at it. There are other people who do things because it's hard, okay? Rock climbers, mountain climbers, Olympic athletes. Are they doing that because it's easy? No, no. They're doing it for the opposite reason. They are ascending to the challenge. And so, ideally, oh, oh so everyone who picks the easy things to do and by the way, if you, let's say if you take easy classes, then you get A's. Well, so did many other people because it's an easy class. All right. That's almost the very definition of easy. So now you come out and you have a high GPA and now it's time for an employer to choose. 
who to hire. And they say, you see your high GPA, but here's another person with exactly the same high GPA and they took all the same easy classes. But now there's someone else who took harder classes and maybe their GPA is not as high. But they were exposed to deeper questions, harder problems to solve. Mm -hmm. They were challenged more. I submit to you that the value of your energy to yourself and to society is measured not by how often you succeed at something that's easy, but it's how often you are challenged by something that is hard. Mm -hmm. And so in science, yeah, science is hard because you have to be really diligent about not making mistakes mm -hmm. and not making avoidable mistakes, understanding your own bias that could land, the hard work it takes just to get some lone answer two years later that you've been working on. You don't have these daily rewards. No one's giving you a gold star. Mm -hmm. You And by the way, there's nothing wrong with making a mistake, provided no one has made that mistake before. <laughs> then it's a new mistake. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's, an, there's a saying that the day you stop making mistakes is the day you are no longer on the frontier of anything. Mm. And you might as well just recede Go back to your rocking chair and just watch the world unfold in front of you. And you'll lead a safe life. That's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and a comfortable life, perhaps. But if you want a life that you, on your deathbed, you say, yeah, I, I'd led a damn good life. Mm -hmm. um, in that life will be challenges that you rose to. Uh, President Kennedy, in one of his several space speeches, asked, well, why are we going to the moon? We're going to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And he said that at a time where the best spacecraft we had to carry people was blowing up on the launch pad. And within nine years of that, we were walking on the moon. So, so that concept, so science is hard, but it's not a bad hard, right? It's, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not in a quarry splitting rocks, okay? <laughs> that's you a different are, kind of hard. That's, that's a, a physical kind of hard, hard. yeah. <laughs> that's a different kind of hard. Yeah. Um, you, are, you are on one of the noblest quests there ever was to decode the book of nature. Mm. And it's a book that you cannot, that doesn't, ex you can't check it out of the library because you are on the discovery path for the contents of that book to begin with. And so, yes, it's hard. And typically, to be good at it, you need a lot of secondary and tertiary knowledge. I want to know the universe, but I need to know math and I need to know physics. And in the search for life, you got to brush up on your biology and there's chemistry in the universe. So I got to pick up the chemistry. And so, yeah, it's hard. And, but if a day goes by when I didn't learn something, that was a wasted day. And I have felt that way my entire life. And you said earlier about my curiosity. That's just curiosity we all had as kids. Sure. There's not, nothing magic about it. We were all curious. And some people managed to retain that curiosity into adulthood. And I think that we call them scientists. Right? <laughs> it's a kind of a childhood curiosity. I, uh, you know, just I, 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 I disagree. I think everybody isn't curious. I think there are people who want the easy route is not to be curious and to ask questions and to learn. I think learning is arguably the great equalizer. Education is, and everyone doesn't want the education. Some of us are. Oh, I, I didn't ignorant. say everyone was curious. 
I said everyone was born curious. Okay, they have <laughs> I didn't say everyone is curious. You're right, yeah. It's nothing special <laughs> all, about it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. children are curious. They're curious on a level where the grown-up who is tended, who, whose duty it is to care for them, it, they're so curious that most of the energy of the grown-up is to prevent their curiosity from killing themselves. Stay away from that clip. Put down the knife. Yeah. Don't, right, right, right. Don't put the bobby pin in the, in the uh -huh. wall socket, uh -huh. right? So, uh -huh. Uh -huh. so we don't think of it as thwarting curiosity. We think of it as protecting them. Mm. But most of what you're protecting them from is their own manifestation of their curiosity. Mm. And then it gets lost sometime in middle school, I think, and definitely by high school. If you're going to lose it, that's when you're going to lose it. And so, so the role of educators, I think strongly, and one day I'll write about this, is to um, not create curiosity. I don't know that if you can do that. Hmm. It's already there. Find a way to nurture it, or worst case, reawaken it. Okay. Okay. Find, get, it's buried. Find it. If it's, it's an ember, fan the ember so that it can burst forth. And once this child becomes curious, then school is no longer a chore. It's no longer something they want to avoid. It's something they embrace. And I've mentioned this in other contexts. You know, why is it that we have an academic system where on the last day of school, before summer break, or at graduation, right? You, you know, you run down the steps, say, school's out, and you just <laughs> toss your books in the air. It's like, whatever we're doing, we've made it such that you're happy that you no longer have to learn. Mm. Something's wrong there. And now when you graduate, people toss their hats in the air, celebrating that they're exiting college. That's a kind of weird feeling. Okay. We, we, you know, and then there's the, okay, it's, it's called a commencement. Commence means to begin. But I think if you don't carry academic curiosity forward, then you get ossified in your knowledge and awareness of this world. And, and I'm you know, sorry. You, I'm sorry. Ossify translation for me, uh, please. Oh, oh, I love that word because it, it, it sounds like what it should mean. <laughs> and it does ossified. mean that. You get yeah. ossified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's usually set of bones um, where oh. whatever flexibility and malleability and whatever was going on, while you're in school and then you get out and everything just gets, gets cemented mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And you say, this is who I am now. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you could be something more or something else or keep growing beyond school. So school should, I think, teach two things. It should nurture curiosity, but it should also um, teach you how to uh, nurture curiosity while you're in class, of course, but uh, it should instill upon you the urge to become a lifelong learner mm -hmm. so that I can say, and I don't know how many people can say this, I can say that I have learned vastly more about this world mm -hmm. after I had exited school than anything that I learned while I was in school. And I want 
to maximize the number of people who can say that about their own lives. About uh, uh, and and so yes, it it means reading books and looking at documentaries and learning in fields outside of your own. So I so I read about art and psychology and philosophy and music and 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 it just keeps growing and it grows and grows and grows and 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 what is life if not and if if you don't use at least part of your life to experience all of what it is to be human. Uh, the discoveries that humans have made who have come before you, um, then I, I think in your one time through life, you have shortchanged your life experience. You said something, and I want to make sure I get this so I can use this accurately. The definition of science is to demystify nature. What did to answer? Tell me what you said, because I want to make sure I say it accurately. Oh. <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, I can say, I, queuing off of that, I can tell you something freshly conceived in this moment, um, the, the role of science is to decode the operations of nature. Decode the operations of nature. That is the role yes. of science. Yes, yes. It, it has no other... And to do so in a way that establishes what is objectively true. And to the path to that I don't even want to call it a destination because it's a journey. The path you're on has to be persistently, uh, you have to be persistently diligent about two things. You want to make sure that what, that you don't end up thinking something is true that is not, mm -hmm. or that something is not true that is. Do whatever it takes to ensure those two facts. And what you end up doing to ensure that is what we call the scientific method. I love it. You are the 100%, 100% I'm a believer. And I, I will go back and listen to this conversation with a dictionary and- <laughs> No. <laughs> no. No, kidding. Only ossify. That's ossify the only was word the only one that got me. Ossify that got me. That's a good me. word. That got me. It's I'm a great word. I'm some ossify. I yes, will, I will be word. using that to stump my friends <laughs> and sound much more smarter than them. Neil, <laughs> thank you so much for joining the Brown Print Podcast. It was an education. I say that often, but it truly was. I thank you so much for taking the time out to do it. I like to have these different takeaways uh, at the end of each podcast. And Neil had some great ones. But for me... When he talked about being a B student and teachers not necessarily saying that he was the best student or a role model student, he found out that he had to become his own support system. And that was being naturally curious about what he was interested in. Oftentimes in life, someone will tell you what you are not, but you have to truly believe and know who you are. And for him to do that at such a young age to me was amazing. But the lesson here is that you cannot let anyone determine what your trajectory will be or how far you will go. He was his own support system. Then the obvious, being a black man in science, I can only imagine that there has to be stories in which he decided not to share with us. But the biggest takeaway for me was that he was not bitter. He is not bitter. He said every time he found something difficult or he came across someone who treated him a different way because he was a black man in this very white world, 
He always relied on his fuel tank of ambition. He would invoke or apply whatever positivity he needed to in that moment to keep going, to press through, to use a track term, whatever hurdle he found himself having to jump over, he would always do it no matter what. And I thought that that was inspiring. Oftentimes we can be bitter. Oftentimes life holds us back, but he stayed positive. And look at him today. Last but not least, learn to love the questions. This man used words like ossified. I don't know about you, but I didn't know what ossified meant. It means quite simply, never become cemented in learning. Never think you know it all. Stay curious, learn more, ask the questions. No question is too simple, no question is too hard. Just stay curious, reading, writing. Apply that science, the science in which he uses to all aspects of life. To me, that is absolutely genius. Neil's new book is out on March 2nd and it's called Cosmic Queries, Star Talk's guide to who we are, how we got here and where we're going. In it, he offers a unique take on the mysteries and curiosities of the cosmos. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Ha <laughs> ha. Kidding. Kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.